Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Fiction. Science fiction. Horror. Fantasy. Crime. LGBT. Thriller. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volur XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. 
That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Tyler Tzedas. I'm Khaled Sinas, and I have been training a global community of women since 2009. I've created a brand new podcast, Sweat Daily, to help you level up your life and reach your health and well-being goals. From fitness tips to food that fuels you, meditation to motivation, we've got you covered. Sweat Daily, the happiest, healthiest, and most confident version of you awaits. Available on Apple Podcasts and wherever you get your podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com Now entered the house of mystery with your hosts, Eric Shapiro, David North Martino, John Copenhaver. FM Riverside and 1050 AM Palm Springs. Welcome back into the house of mystery. I'm Al Warren. Mr. Joe Goldberg is in. I'm in. His mechanical, his his work, his physical labor. I've been in, I'm in because I came in from the outside because it is yard work time, Al. I know you, I know you do a lot of that, and I am getting too old for this. So well, I, yeah. I'm glad to be in. Hopefully I'll be retired from that by the oh. time I'm your age. <laughs> I, I, I'm so worn out, I can't even think of a good snappy comeback. No snap. No snapbacks. No, no snap in me. I know why you're really tired. You're staying up all night watching the coronation of the new king in England, right? I, 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 didn't, I didn't get up at five, but I will admit that I watched, I did wake up whenever, I did watch the coronation. I went, wow, this is a coronation. This is, that, that, that's one hell of a robe thing. Yeah, he's got a longer train than most ladies at a wedding. A longer train than the Amtrak. Yeah. Well, <laughs> good to be king, man. Good to be yeah. king. Yeah, good to be king. Kind of like you. You're the king of podcasting. Oh, please. Please. Oh, please. No, I wouldn't want to be. Let, let someone else do it. I just do it and walk away. Who cares? We care. We care. Yeah. Well, now, speaking of, um, you know, faces for radio, we've got a face for a radio writer. <laughs> that's you. That's what he told me. No, I mean, you know, it just fits. Well, you're the pretty one, right? 
Joe, you're the pretty yeah. one. So you're you're the one we can use for our images, not me. Knock yourself out. I'm here yeah. for you. And and our guest, we've got Mr. Uh, Peter Cole. So thanks for being here, Peter. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. So uh, you've got a face for radio. Well, that's what my mother always told me. <laughs> Wise woman. <laughs> she spent a little time acting, so I, I trust her judgment. Well, you know, I, I've got the whole body for radio. <laughs> uh, so now let's let's talk about who you are. So now you are an author, and you've got some uh, books going on here. But before that, it looks like you were in the military for quite a while, and you've done some deployments, and now you're a police officer. So um, what is driving you to do uh, writing and writing of, of books rather than, you know, military police work? Well, I, um, I enlisted in the Army Reserves in 1991 and had uh, three deployments, uh, Kosovo in 2000, Iraq in 2003, 2007. I was sworn in as a Providence police officer in Providence, Rhode Island. And then I deployed again in 2008 but uh, to Iraq. The 2003 and 2008 were Iraq. And the mission sets for somebody in my line of work as an Army Civil Affairs officer just weren't there. So I went from, you know, daily mission sets in my first two deployments to um, we would get outside of the wire about, you know, twice a week if we were lucky. We had a lot of staff meetings, which if you've never been in the Army or in an Army staff meeting, uh, it's not a fun experience. Um, and my wife had introduced me to this new thing called Facebook, and I was reconnecting with all of um, these people from my childhood home of Nantucket Island. And I was reading this great book called Secret Commandos by John R. Plaster, and I started writing a novel. And it took me about 10 years to finish because of fits and starts and life things happening. Uh, but, it, you know, it was just one of those things. I retired from the Army in 2015, which helped. And so I ended up with this manuscript that I needed to do something with, and I was able to get it published. There, there's usually a, a little bit of courage that comes with actually sending that manuscript out, because you're not like a professional writer who's been writing for a paper for years or a magazine or something like that. So to, to take this manuscript, which took you 10 years or so uh, of your life, um, and send it to people to judge <laughs> is pretty brave. So uh, was there a particular drive that pushed you to do that? So, uh, yeah, actually. So first of all, I have to tell you, you know how you hear that story about the, the struggling author who, you know, tons of rejections and they have trouble getting an agent and, you know, rejection after rejection. Yeah. I'm not that guy. Uh, I, I, uh, we hate you, Peter. And you should, you should. I really, I got very lucky. Um, so, yeah, what, what drove the train on it, I was uh, at a sort of career point, and a good friend and classmate of mine wanted me to join the SWAT team. And I had to go get a physical, and I had this EKG that came back with a um, slight anomaly that turned out to be nothing. But, but for those of you who are, like, over 25, which I certainly am, you know, you start getting EKGs as you, you know, get older. And I realized that I... Now, I had done some cool guy stuff, and the SWAT team certainly would have been an honor, but it was not something I was passionate about. But I really wanted to finish a novel, so I did. And I have a good friend who writes uh, Sunday comics and graphic novels, and he's published, a guy named Norm Feudy. And I said to him, I said, I know you have an agent. Um, I know you're published. I know your agent probably doesn't handle my genre, but 
does she know anybody? And he emailed me back and he said, send me the first hundred pages. And his agent's best friend took me on as a client and um, she was able to get me a book deal fairly quickly. And um, I still am not sure how it all came together. It seems improbable, but I went from being, you know, a literary nobody. I'm assuming we don't count police reports um, to having a book deal. And it was, you know, fantastic. Did you sleep with someone or something to get it? Or? Well, first of all, if you've ever seen me, you know that that would probably not help my cause at all. I'd probably still be uh, <laughs> contemplating the SWAT team. Uh, no, He's always I, heavily armed, though. Yeah. He, you know, my agent is uh, Cynthia Manson. She's been in the industry for a while. She she knows what she's doing, and she had the contacts. And so I, you know, I see one. A lot of people say, oh, I would never use an agent. I'll self-publish, Amazon publish which are great things to do, but when you have an agent, you have access that you don't get when you're just, you know, putting your manuscript on Amazon. Um, and it, for me, it paid off. So um, if she ever needs a kidney transplant uh, and my kidneys work, she's got one. Well, this is the plan. You know, that, <laughs> she, she planned that all along. That's right. So it, I was, it was fascinating. I was going to write this sort of one-off, very moody novel about, a uh, Vietnam vet with post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, and he's you know, sort of fallen into private detective work just because he has really no idea what else to do with his life. And he's, you know, a perpetual adolescent, not unlike me. And suddenly she said, you think you can write a series? I can sell a series better than I can sell a standalone. And so I took this kind of one-off project and I had to develop this entire world and all these characters to populate it. So it, it it's been fascinating. And a lot of fun. Well, you said Vietnam, and I'm wondering why did you go back to Vietnam, given the fact that you have a more contemporary military experience? So laziness, um, and laziness, and I also, you know, I knew it was a private detective story, and I have to imagine that being a private detective in the age of Google Maps and instant, you know, Court Connect records, where you can look up anybody's record and things like that, really wouldn't be that exciting. And I wanted to old-fashioned gumshoe who had to tail people and, you know, do research and stake things out. So that that was part of it. Um, it was also, in part, a love letter to my hometown at a very specific time before real estate development really boomed. And if you're not familiar with Nantucket Island, uh, it is a very expensive real estate market. And sort of the turning point for this, in my mind, was the late 1980s. In the early 1980s, and even in the mid to late 1980s, there's still a lot of middle class people who lived there. So I really was writing this love letter to this time and place. I wanted a guy who still had to do the old fashioned detective work. And because it had to be set in a certain time, and I was interested in PTSD, Vietnam was the war that made sense. I once knew a man from Nantucket. Yeah, don't do it. I was waiting for that. What's the, what was the difference sort of in research of the military from Vietnam era, which was the war of my youth? And the, and being having the experience you had and the knowledge of the military in the 2000s, because research is critical, of course, and you, you had to do it. I've done tons and tons of research, uh, hundreds of hours, thousands of dollars, that type of thing. Uh, I was very lucky. That book I mentioned by John R. Plaster was a is a very informative book about. There's a very small secret segment of the army known as Mac V. Sog. They also included uh, Navy and. Some Marines, I believe. 
but they were special operations soldiers, Green Berets, who conducted these um, surveillance missions on the Ho Chi Minh Trail, and they would get into these, you know, these incredible gunfights where they were vastly outnumbered. It was exceedingly dangerous and very secretive. And until the 1990s, it really wasn't talked about. It was still classified. So that was part of the research in terms of, you know, the differences between Iraq in the early 2000s and Kosovo and Vietnam. You know, I was in my job skill, I was special forces adjacent, but I was not one of the operators and I would never claim to be. Uh, but it was interesting to see how that type of mindset, the type of man uh, who became a Green Beret during my, my time frame. And then they were essentially this very much the same type of person. You know, it was this, this sort of iconic mold. And and that was fascinating to see that, you know, the guys who I knew who did it compared to these historical figures. You know, the only difference was when they were born. They were very similar in outlook and approach to life. Um, and then, you know, there's all sorts of technical and historical things in terms of equipment and policy. But I did a lot of research. I was lucky enough to know a couple guys who were Green Berets in Vietnam uh, growing up. So hearing their stories were certainly informative. And then knowing, you know, a couple of the generations that followed on from that were taught by these guys. And like I said, seeing how really very similar uh, personalities and outlook and approach. Well, you you mentioned uh, building out your characters in a new world when you made your series. So is is Andy work based on the characteristics of those military people that you knew or researched, other for your friends to build that base going into his, you know, your stories? Yes, in in some ways, I I I think I pointed out earlier I'm lazy, so. I've stolen a little bit from my personal life. You know, Andy's uh, family, you know, are from the Northeast, um, South Boston, specifically Southie, if you were local. You know, my family, I was born in Boston. My family spent time there. We were not from Southie, though I think my mom lived there for a little bit. Andy's mother is German. Uh, she's a war bride. You know, my mother was not a war bride. She was too young. She's actually Andy's age. But she, uh, she and my family were, uh, my grandparents were refugees from uh, the Soviet Union in the area of the Ukraine, who actually ended up fleeing west uh, into occupied Poland. And then after the war, as the Soviets were gobbling up whatever they could in Eastern Europe, they kept fleeing further and further into Germany. So I was able to take some of that sort of experience, that immigrant experience, and roll that into Andy. You know, some of the friends that I've made along the way, certainly aspects of his personality. Andy smokes my grandfather's brand of cigarette, you know, to get down into the weeds. It's, you know, unfiltered lucky strikes. Uh, and in terms of his personality, very much so. He has that sort of stubborn inability to quit, which I think is one of the hallmarks of a lot of the people that I knew were in the service. So when you built out, this is a question that I ask a lot because I always were struggling with it. Did you start with your character? Or did you start with the story when you were starting to build this out? That is a great question. Uh, I started with a scene. I had a scene in my mind, which is toward the end of the first book, um, in which the, as of at that point in time, unnamed detective, whose background I only knew he was going to be a former SOG, MACV SOG, he's running down a paddy dike on a cranberry bog on Nantucket in the fog, and he's... It's very reminiscent of things he did in Vietnam, and he's in a very dangerous situation because somebody is about to kill him, and he picks up on one little thing, one little you know thing in the environment, a flock of birds that he hears, and it completely alters the 
the scene as it was, you know, as the villain is playing it out and it's based on his experience. So I had that scene and then the next big character driver in that universe I was building out was again, Nantucket circa 1982, this sort of time and place that was a little more innocent, I think, than it is now. And once I had those down, I got the first novel written. It was really about the relationships that he has. And I guess in that novel too, you know, he's got a childhood best friend in that novel who he deals with and they have this relationship. He's got a client. Um, and I will be perfectly honest, my first novel, like a lot of people, I did not know what I was doing. And there were things that I would probably do a little bit differently. And then in the follow-on novels, he had to have friends who were contemporary, who would be appropriate for him, and they couldn't be cliched. You know, the gruff police captain who chews on a cigar and screams and yells and threatens to take his license. You know, it's a very tropey genre, and I was trying to play on it, but avoid as much as I could. Building in friends who are former Green Berets, former Vietnam veterans, some are current Green Berets, um, like a lot of uh, veterans. You know, he has friends who he hasn't seen in 10 or 15 years, but in his mind, they're still as close as they were, you know, circa 1968, 1967. When, when you're um, writing the scenes of violence, how is it you... you uh you do that are you are you conscious are you trying to be aware of modern day sensitivity or do you think about it or you just go ahead so that was actually one of the questions i was thinking about today especially in light of you know the last several days the unfortunate events i feel that it is sort of my responsibility as a writer to first and foremost write an entertaining story but within that to write the scenes of violence i think they have to be credible they have to be realistic they can't glorify the violence. And in fact, in a lot of them, they really, in my books, I hope what comes across is sort of the, the real ugliness and interpersonal toll that the violence takes, emotional, physical. You know, it. I'm, and I'm not knocking him because his films are fantastic, but the, the sort of violence, say, a Quentin Tarantino film, that's not what I'm going for. I'm, I want something that is, you know, for people who are in violent professions or have dealt with violence, uh, police, martial artists, veterans, when they read the passages, they go, oh, yeah, yeah, no, that's real. That That's exactly what happens when that happens. And I think by making it realistic and honest, that is sort of the counter to the aggrandizement of violence in uh, books, film, not so much radio. You guys are, you get a pass, uh, but it's not the scene violence, so. We just talk about it. Um, well, yeah, you must put a lot of yourself into this right you know having the military and policing background do you find yourself going back and taking from things you've seen and using that in your characters sometimes that's that's definitely that is definitely part of it i think there may be writers of much greater technical skill who can just fully develop this stuff in a lab i can't i have to you know uh, put bits of my life in it one to ground it but two for the things that you know, I run a very fine line between being very descriptive in certain areas, places, locations, apartments, and being very dis vague in physical descriptions of people. I like to give just enough information that you, the reader, will take over and form your view of the people. So to that end, uh, yes, you know, which isn't to say that, you know, I've never been on the Ho Chi Minh Trail. I've, you know, I've never laid an ambush. Uh, some of the martial arts scenes, you know, are based on discussions with my uh, older brother, who's a very skilled martial artist for years, who practiced a couple different forms. And um, I would say things like, hey, read this scene. You know, is this 
Is this how you execute that type of kick? And, you know, but in terms of the emotion and, you know, if whether people like me who are, you know, cops and soldiers and sometimes, you know, very tough guys like to admit it, there is this emotional component to it. You know, when you're done with a violent altercation and if you're not badly hurt, there's the after effects, emotional and physical, what happened. And, and I think I definitely put that in, you know, there's not a lot of gloating when Andy Rourke is done fighting somebody if he's, you know, not badly hurt. There's not a lot of, you know, high fiving and did you see how I did that? So. Well, you've mentioned, like we, like we all do in writing, we're trying to write entertaining books, but given his background and your background and, you know, police and military, are there any subtext or themes that you want people to sort of come away with the PTSD element of stress of being in the military, even being private investigators? Or some, is there something larger than just entertainment that people will siphon out of your writing? Uh, absolutely. Each book, there's you know, sort of a subtext. I, I like to think of it as my hidden theme, and I'm probably not being as subtle as I would like. Part of it is you know, not just PTSD, but for this particular character, you know, he's had this experience of being you know, this very unique experience where he's essentially at the top of his game. You know, what he did in Vietnam was done by a tiny, tiny number of soldiers. They were literally the best of the best that we had. They fought in secret. And so for him, there's this sense of no longer sort of fitting into the world. And while I, I can't claim to have had that experience in Toto, I remember coming back from deployments and thinking, geez, I just spent a year working with the same three or four soldiers, a couple other Americans, you know, a small team environment, doing our job and facing, you know, common dangers and hardships together. And they had my back 100 percent, 24 hours a day, seven days a week and vice versa. And then coming back and especially as a reservist where you step, you know, in a matter of days or weeks from your on active duty to now you're at home in your house or your apartment and you don't have that team and you don't have that support. And there's this incredible sense, at least for me, of, of loneliness and isolation. And that's one of the things which I try to convey with Andy in the first probably two books. And then going on, you know, the second book, it's sort of a, a bit of an homage, homage to my grandparents uh, in that it is. It's a classic, you know, detective story, but it's also about the immigrant experience. And in America, we think of Vietnam as an American experience. But for the characters in the book who are Vietnamese, you know, their take is a little bit different. You know, it's uh, their country that was at war. It's their country that was lost if you were, you know, in the South. And then in the third book, there's this this sense of that need to pay back a debt, um, a debt that one soldier owes another and being blinded by that need and becoming single-minded and focused in the danger of being, you know, sucked into that sort of Nietzschean, you know, this guy's gazing into the abyss or he's fighting the dragons and he is becoming those things. So, uh, yeah. It's, it seems like um, you've invested a lot of your own emotion and heart into this series so far. Uh, I wonder what kind of accomplishment you feel each time you get a book done. So, uh, first of all, there's a tremendous amount of relief. You know, it's you, it, each book takes about a year to write, with the exception of the first one, um, the, the decade in the making. But there's this sort of uh, rhythm to it. You know, you start off slowly, you do your research, or I do my research. And then you kind of, for me, the writing, you know, if I can get a few pages done, that's a good day. If I can get a few paragraphs done, that's an okay day. In the beginning, sometimes just three sentences, you know, if I can get three sentences done. And then 
by the time the book is done, there's been this furious rush toward the end because now the story is really taking off and it's kind of writing itself. And then, like a lot of writers, I have been in the project for so long. I've been in the forest for so long. I can't see the trees. And I don't know if what I turned out was any good or not because I've been just so immersed in it. And classic case in point, The Ambassador, my uh, current book that's out, I wrote it. I felt like I was writing in a rush to make deadline. I was very worried about coming in under the, the word count, and I submitted it to my good friend uh, who reads them, gives them the first read and the first edit. And I said, I don't know if I broke the series with this one. Like, I just, I don't know. And she wrote back and she said, no, you didn't. And then I heard back from the publisher who said, you know, my editor over at uh, Severn House who said, we really liked it, but that but is always the scary, scary moment. And I said, what was wrong with it? Did I break the series? She said, no. We wanted 80,000 words and you gave us 120 and we're going to have to pare some of this down. So uh, for those of you who don't magically in your heads do word count, uh, 80,000 words is about 200 pages, give or take. So I was way over my word count. And she said, you know, we can we can pare this down to we'd really like to get down under like 100,000, 90,000 would be better. And so I got it done. And we made the edits and I sent it off to my agent. And, you know, I also have a small coterie of people who read the, you know, the first draft. You know, my, my brother's a martial artist, a couple of very good friends. They're all people who are very honest with me. And that is an eternity waiting for the feedback. And the feedback I got was, no, you, this is probably the best one yet. So that part of it is tough because there's, you know, there's a lot of different things that happen mostly. There's the getting the project done part of it. There's the, the, the technical challenges of editing. And then there's the, you know, the, the potential for validation or criticism. What was fascinating was I've, you know, this, this is the first book of mine that Kirkus Review actually said good things about, you know. Um, most of the time, if you're not familiar with Kirkus or if you are, they're great. They're a name in the industry. But up until then, I had gotten things like, you know, that were the equivalent of Colt as an author breathes, you know, Colt as an author manages to hold a pen. Like, they weren't great reviews, which sort of the standard. Um, and this one, they were, they were glowing. I was, you know, blown away because this was the one where I really thought, you know, this is it. I'm, I'm never going to be able to write in this town again type of thing. Well, is that because you've changed as a writer as you've gone along? You know, it's, I think it's more about honing your skill. Um, I, the feedback I've been getting is that I'm much better at writing dialogue now that the dialogue reinforces the story and characters. Um, I think I'm probably, you know, a little more comfortable. I also, in what I write and knowing how to steer around things that might be pitfalls or, you know, I don't have the luxury luxury necessarily of being able to write things that are inflammatory or would be considered insulting or, you know, would offend people. But I still have to convey the story honestly so that learning the technical challenge of, Portraying somebody, say, as a racist without having them drop a ton of racial slurs, if any. And so you learn those skills, which there's a little bit of growth there, which is fantastic. You know, sort of technical skills. I do think I've also tried to stay away from the tropes. The nice thing about my genre is that it's, it is a very specific genre, very clear left and right limits. And that's both comforting and constraining. And so finding ways to work within that that are sort of new um, or at least uh, different enough to entertain the reader. And then just, you know, if you do anything long enough, writing four novels, you're going to develop technical skills, you know, 
that are going to hopefully increase between novel one and novel four. And I, I feel definitely that that's happened. How do you tackle your, your bad characters, your evil characters, and, and where do you draw from for that? Or is that really who you are, is the evil characters in the book? Uh, uh, you know, I would tell you that, like anybody who creates characters, who creates this world, you're spot on. The bad guys, they are as much a part of me as Andy. They're, you know, they're my creation. It's sort of like children. Um, and yes, I do populate them with some of the same, you know, failings that I have. In terms of bad guys, I want their motivation to be honest. You know, I think it's, and I love the James Bond movies, but if you go back to say Goldfinger, what is Goldfinger's motivation? What made Goldfinger or Goldfinger, what made him this bad guy who wants to corner the market on gold by irradiating the, you know, uh, all the gold at Fort Knox? What makes Ernst Stavro Blofeld such a villain? So with my guys, rather than obviously being supervillains, because why would a PI run into that? I want people who have the same motivations that any of us would have, you know, sex, greed, the only difference between them and you or me is that those checks and balances that we were raised with or society has placed on us, they just don't feel them as strongly. So when somebody cuts you off in traffic, your response isn't to, you know, pull out a gun and start shooting at them, hopefully. Whereas the villain, they don't have that same, you know, sort of check or balance or hold uh, that restrains them. And so there's an element of fun in that, too. Do you feel a need to explain that, you know, in the sense of when you're writing a, a villain and a character that's doing something that's illegal or bad, for instance, um, do you feel like you have to kind of acknowledge why that character's doing that? It depends on the character. If it's a major character, yes. If it's a, if it's somebody who's, you know, ancillary to the story or one of the stepping stones along the story, I don't feel the need to explain their background, but I feel an intense need to make them realistic, to make them, you know, credible. And I think actually some of that comes from, you know, being a cop and working. And I was uh, I was in patrol on midnights for about 10 years, pretty tough neighborhood. And then, you know, now I work at the courthouse where I, I deal with juvenile criminal offenders. One of the things which struck me about a lot of the people I dealt with who were criminals was one, you know, some of them, they were just going to hate you because they were, you're a cop and they're not, they're angry for a lot of reasons, usually having to do with societal factors and upbringing. And, you know, the other thing which struck me was the amount of people who you could have this sort of professional relationship with, you know, the, the coyote and the sheepdog and the old uh, Looney Tunes cartoons. And you could have this sort of professional understanding of boundaries and rules. So when writing the minor characters, uh, or not so much minor, but the less developed characters, and some of them will actually become more developed villains um, in later books, but trying to give them that same sort of quality. Because you have to remember, too, as a cop, when you see a villain on the street, for instance, you're only interacting with them for 20 minutes, an hour, maybe once a week or every couple of days. And so that's what I try and convey with uh, my, my sort of ancillary villains, the B team, if you will. Um, and it I think in doing that and keeping the dialogue honest and crisp and real, I think that's where their character development comes in. Well, you mentioned um, writing the mystery genre has sort of guide rails. It's a narrow, narrow road. Is there a uh, Kill a Mockingbird inside, Peter? Is there the great American novel that to, just to get out of the genre to try something different? Yeah, that urge? So, sure. I, I First of all, I would love to uh, 
retire from the, the department. It's been very, very good for my family, and they've allowed me to do a lot of things. But at some point in time, I will have to hang up my spurs, as they say. And um, I think that will give me the time to explore different types of writing outside of the genre. You know, maybe not necessarily To Kill a Mockingbird, but maybe looking at crime from different perspectives and or looking at crime as the sort of packaging around the real story of the characters. But yeah, I would certainly like to write more in many diverse uh, types of books. I, I guess when you're writing a fiction too, it probably gives you a sense of um, justice in the sense that you can make sure that uh, justice is served, that the, the bad guy gets it, you know, whereas in real life it doesn't always happen. I, I imagine that's an important part as well. It is, though I do it more for the reader than I do it <laughs> for uh, for balancing the books, you know. One of the things which I'm sort of proud of in my books is that, you know, even when the bad guy gets it, sometimes it's a, a pure victory for my guy, you know, or it's a hollow victory or he feels no sense of victory. He's just he's just survived this sort of thing, this, you know, set of experiences. And now he has to sort of figure out what he has to do for the next several months. You know, he's there's not a lot of justice and part of keeping it, you know, very honest for the reader, even though. um like I said, you know, my main goal is to entertain, but it can't be it can't be the wrapped up in an hour, you know, um, neat bow tied ending. There has to be an element, I think, of reality. So I'm very comfortable with there being, a, you know, a certain amount of justice deferred, delayed, denied. I will say many times my agent says things like you can't do that. You know, the, the reader has expectations. You have to give them a little more. And then I'll say, OK, you know, you're right. You're right. And, you know, or my editor will say, that's really, you know, can we have just that just doesn't quite work. And I'll, I'll you know, I'm, I'm very responsive to the feedback because it is they know what they're doing. You know, I've written four books and they've dealt with hundreds, if not thousands. So, yes, there's an element, I guess, of that, but not much. Well, we're talking about the reader. So as you're writing and you have a loyal fans of Andy Rourke, are those people standing over your shoulder as you're writing? Do you think about them, or do you just block out how the reader will react to your writing and just write away and then maybe worry about it later? So I don't understand my own fan base. I will be perfectly honest with you. I've had my own brother, you know, a guy who's known me my whole life, say, I really feel like I know Andy. Like, I really feel like I'm, like, friends with him. Like, we, we hang out, you know, and I've gotten similar feedback from other people, and I don't – I just can't see it because I – you know, I have this one over the world view, like I, I see the total universe this guy lives in. But if I'm concerned about the reader while I'm writing, it is that scenes and dialogue are as credible as I can make them. I never want the reader going, you know, that didn't quite work for me or, you know, it was it was OK. But or, you know, Andy wouldn't really do that. And I, I think of it of the um, sort of the British mystery novel thing. One thing which I used to hate when I read, you know, not so much contemporary ones, but slightly older British mysteries, maybe like Sherlock Holmes, when Dr. Watson takes the safety off the revolver. Most revolvers don't have safeties. And I don't want my readers to have that moment. You know, I don't want the people who are familiar with Boston going, you couldn't get there from, you know, that route, or nobody would take the tunnel at that time of day. And so that's where I consider it. I'll, I'll tell you a funny story. My uh, my father-in-law, 
my late father-in-law was read the first novel and uh, he said two things. He said, one, he said, please don't ever show me an unedited manuscript. Don't show me an unedited manuscript again because I can't, I can't read all the mistakes. And so that was a huge lesson to learn. But then he said, and the only other problem was you have him driving to the Cape, you know, Cape Cod from Boston. Why did he take such a foolish route? You know, he went over the wrong bridge. And if you don't know across the Cape Cod Canal, there are two bridges and there are different routes that align with them. And I had my detective driving the way that I always drove from Providence, Rhode Island, which is, you know, 45 miles south of Boston. And yet Andy lives in Boston and he would never take this route that I had him going down. So that's when I think about the reader. I try and avoid these moments. Yeah. So you, you didn't tell us. Like, so that guy that that cuts you off in traffic, you don't go out and shoot him. But do you take that character and put them in your book and uh, dispose of them? No, usually not that. I, you know, it's, I see the temptation. Um, <laughs> yeah, take it. I'll do something. You know, the, <laughs> I think the people that I'm disposing of uh, in my book are the villains, if you will. The one, there's an element of this person has to be bad enough. Right. You know, there's that. But they're fiction. They're this this wonderful creation. There are a couple in book three. There are a couple of characters who uh, are informed by people who I've run into over the years, but not so much that I make them villains, but that they had certain habits or, you know, uh elements of vanity that that I wanted to add in or and sometimes you know some of the heroes too are you know very much based on that but uh no actually more if, if anything so in book three I just beat Andy up I take a lot of stuff away from him and I I, I drag him through the coals and the mud and I give him this sort of Sisyphean task and I would every night I'd finish writing a new passage in which I was further mean to him. I would take something away or I'd harm him some way or I'd injure him emotionally or physically. Close the laptop for the night and go leave my office and walk into the living room and I'd laugh at my wife. Yeah, I stuck it to Andy tonight and have a good chuckle. And I, I think there's there's more of that element to it is, you know, what can I put this character through and have him bounce back? Sounds like an S and M book. Uh you know if I thought that I could move a few more copies, if I could write that type of genre, I certainly am not too proud to give it a whirl. <laughs> well, there you have it. Well, you know, um, so let's talk about how people find you. Do you uh, interact on social media? Do you have a website? Do you like where? Where do people find you? So I am. Uh, so kind of ironically, for somebody who always consider myself a very private person and uh, shun social media, I have a. Peter Colt author Facebook page. I pretty much respond to anybody. I have a Peter Colt author Instagram, uh, Twitter. I have my own website, which I believe like Pete at or it's peter-colt.com. Um, I am very accessible. I have a, a author email, which is Pete at peter-colt.com brought to you by Google, I should add. Um, and so I'm out there. I have, if people reach out to me through my website, my Facebook, I love talking to fans. And I will tell you, early on, I was given a gift. I had published my first novel, and I got an email from a guy who said, hey, I was a forward air controller in Vietnam. Uh, I was part of something called the Sneaky Pete Air Force. And they were the guys who, you know, they're kind of mentioned in the book. And he said, one, I don't think anyone has ever really mentioned copywriters and this and that. But he said, I really liked your book. And, you know, 
So I struck up this friendship with this man. And I've had other Vietnam vets who reached out and it's really gratifying. Like I've done my job. If I have somebody who was there, you know, either in Vietnam or even did or was close to what these guys did and they say, you didn't, you know, you did a good job. You didn't make it improbable. You didn't screw it up. Um, you know, we never called BS on any. And so for me, that's, that's one of the big benefits of being accessible. And yes, I'm very accessible. Um, also, uh, Severn House UK, any of the books from number three on are certainly advertised there. I, Kensington published my first two books and they are, you know, there's a presence there. Um, but I am definitely out there and I'm easily accessible. Well, we'll make sure everything's up on our website so people can find you with one click without doing any searching on Google, you know. So um, now reviews, do you do you follow your reviews? Are you really take them seriously or are you the type of writer that ignores them? Uh, it depends on where the review comes from, to be frank. I've had one New York Times review, which that was probably – uh, well, if you're from my part of the country, it's like going from playing in Pawtucket and going to Fenway and playing. Um, I'm not sure what the West Coast equivalent would be, but uh, so that, that was fantastic. Getting a good Kirkus review was very nice. Uh, Publishers Weekly, great. What's weird is the Amazon reviews. Um, and I read them and I, I take them to heart if I can. Uh, for the most part, you have to have this sort of Zen approach. You have to know you're not going to make everybody happy. And that sometimes people just want to be able to voice an opinion. And what I found is if I get a negative review on Amazon, you know, I like to click on that person and see what books they liked. And sometimes, you know, I have this review that's really negative and I look at the types of books they read and I go, well, of course they didn't like my book. You know, they're reading Joe X, Y, and Z in a different genre. You know, why would you even pick this up? Um, the only review I've ever really been annoyed with had a person review one of my, my second book, uh, on Amazon and you can feel free to look it up. And the review was terrible. They just wrote terrible as the title and wrote, I loved the first book, but by the second book, I was ready for a divorce. And I thought, you know, I mean, good for you. It's snarky. It's catchy. I get it, but. You're not really helping me write a better book when you do that. I always, you know, tell people that you have to take it with a grain of salt. You know, you're not going to please everybody. The good reviews are not nice. And, you know, everybody loves to hear nice things said about them. But at the end of the day, as long as you keep getting book deals, you know, that's a great review. My publisher keeps publishing me. And that's one of the best reviews I can ever have. Oh, you hunt down those reviewers and take them out. <laughs> <laughs> I... You know, it's a technique. I just don't think I have the time or energy. I'm a father of two boys, and I still work full-time, so it's enough that I can get the lawn mowed and, you know, and write these books. Yeah, no, I know. Well, we really appreciate you being here. I guess you're – are you working on book five now? I am working on book five right now. Um, it is uh, a couple months away from being done. It's a lot of fun. It is called The Judge. That is a working title. It may change. And it's a little story about blackmail and Andy Rourke trying to help out the victim. That'll be interesting. Well, we appreciate you being here. And, of course, the newest book, which is called The Ambassador, and it's the Andy Rourke mystery book four in the series. And our guest is the author, Peter Colt. Thank you for being here. Thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed myself. Interesting. Thank you. You've been listening to the House of Mystery radio show. To find out more about our guests, hosts, 
Bible Show. Go to www.houseofmystery.com. Show's over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? You've been listening to the House of Mystery radio show. To find out more about our guests, hosts, or shows, go to www.houseofmystery.com. Show's over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Yeah. Good night. This has been a production of Something Weird Media. I'll be back.